maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. It's the Sunday debate, and this week we're hearing from the first of our India 75 series. Across three episodes, we'll be examining the future of the country 75 years after its independence. Today we're asking, can Britain and India be friends? In this episode, we're joined by Shashi Thoreau, politician, writer and former diplomat who has been a member of the Indian Parliament since 2009. And we're joined by Joe Johnson, British politician and former Minister of State for Universities, Science, Research and Innovation. When this conversation was recorded just last week, Shashi Tharoor was campaigning to become leader of India's Congress party. 
Our host for the series is journalist, broadcaster, and author of Partition Voices, Kavita Puri. Here's Kavita with more. Welcome to this series, this first of our three-part series, India at 75. A new series from Intelligence Squared, exploring the biggest issues facing India 75 years after its independence. Tonight's question is, can Britain and India be friends? And I'm delighted to introduce our guests. Shashi Tharoor, politician, writer and former diplomat, who's been a member of the Indian Parliament since 2009. He is currently running in the Congress presidential elections and he's taken time away to speak with us. So we're hugely grateful. He was formerly Under Secretary General of the United Nations and is the author of many books, including the best-selling Inglorious Empire, How Britain Made the Modern World, and the recent title, The Struggle for India's Soul. And Joe Johnson, former member of the British Parliament between 2010 and 2019, he held positions in government under three prime ministers, including head of the number 10 Downing Street Policy Unit and Minister of State for Universities, Science and Innovation. He's currently chairman of Access Creative, an independent provider of further education and training for the creative industries. He's also a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and president's professorial fellow at King's College London. Welcome both. Shashi, India and Britain have had a complex 400-year-old relationship. How would you describe the current relationship between the two countries? Well, I think it's actually fairly civil uh, in the sense that we have to remember that the British Empire in India, for all its exactions and loot and pillage, ended fairly amicably in what was called a transfer of power rather than, shall we say, a a revolution or an overthrow. It was a transfer of power done with the agreement of all sides. And um, there is an anecdote, which may well be apocryphal, that when Jawaharlal Nehru, as prime minister, visited the UK, uh, Winston Churchill asked him, how is it that you're able to be so completely friendly with us despite all the stuff we did to you? And Nehru is said to have replied, I was taught by a great man, namely Mahatma Gandhi, never to fear and never to hate. And so there is a relationship which is not characterized uh, by by either of those emotions. Um, Most Indians regard the British with a certain amount of special interest as as people who had an involvement with India. Most Indians also tend not to be um, uh, terribly sort of obsessed with the historic past. I think that There are a few people like me who have a history as a bugbear and who do feel that there are matters that still require atonement. But at the same time, we do have an ability uh, to forgive and forget and move on. I think India and Britain have done that. Your topic was, can India and Britain be friends? And my answer is, of course, we can be friends. We are friends and we can be better friends. The question is whether that friendship is based on enduring values, mutual political interests, geopolitics, economic uh, uh, interdependence, uh, or other kinds of of, of elements. And in all of those, I'd say we fall well short of any sort of ideal, and that therefore there's tremendous progress, tremendous scope, progress to be made, and tremendous scope for improvement. But uh, I wouldn't say that there is a significant major problem right now. At the same time, I wouldn't say that the relationship is as good as it could be. It's civil. Mm. 
Um, Civil, Joe Johnson. Um, I mean, the balance power has shifted. How would you assess the current relationship? Well, I think it's pretty encouraging that, you know, the real point of contention in UK-India relationship um, over the past few months has been the man-cadding of uh, Charlie Dean by Deepti Sharma at the, end of the <laughs> at the end of the last ODI. And I think it says a lot about, you know, the generally positive vibes in the relationship, that that's the worst that we can uh, say about each other, that a dis dismissal was potentially unfair in the eyes of the English fans and totally legitimate and within the rule book in the eyes of the Indian fans. It's not the biggest deal. Um, I, I think the UK-India relationship um, is, is underperforming, to be honest. Um, I think it has great potential to be a lot deeper and stronger than it is today. There have been you know, periods where it seemed that we've become less relevant to each other. Certainly, the UK has become significantly less relevant uh, for India. I mean, if you look at any of the most important yardsticks by which we measure the relationship, trade and investment to start with on the economic front, um, you know, the UK has tumbled down the rankings of India's trade partners from second most important trade partner in 2000, at the turn of the millennium, to the very low teens, if that, today. So on the trading side, the UK has become much less important for India as it, as it globalizes and as it entertains deeper relations all around the world. On the investment side, there have been some spectacular inward investments into the UK from India. I'm um, thinking, of course, of the ones in the period sort of 2005 to 2009 by Tatars and others into, into our steelmaking sector um, and, and other big deals like that. But it's generally, I would say, on the economic front, been underperforming. And that's because, you know, India, uh, for all of its great strengths, remains relatively closed as a services economy to us, which is where the UK's strengths are, whilst it's pretty open on the manufacturing and on the sort of the, the hard stuff, where other countries like France and Germany are much better at selling their, their sort of civil engineering, their construction capabilities, the building of India. So India's opening, pace and nature of opening hasn't sort of facilitated a deeper economic relationship between our two countries. So we've sort of, to some extent, slipped um, in importance for India. And I'm very hopeful that the trade agreement, which is now being negotiated between our two countries, with an ambitious deadline of Diwali, just around the corner, will change some of that and enable us to uh, shift the balance a bit more so that we can do more with each other on the economic front, which is such an important driver of, of bilateral relations. On other aspects, you know, taking the sort of the people to people stuff, the relations are, are much, much stronger. And we're building, of course, on the, the real asset that we have in terms of the uh, South Asian diaspora in the UK. And the desire on the part of many young Indians to come and study in the UK. I, as a former universities minister, I look at this very carefully on a, on a sort of quarterly basis, and I'm absolutely delighted to see the increase in numbers of Indian students coming to UK universities. Numbers are now going to overtake China this year. China's long been our biggest student body on campus in terms of international students, and India is about to become, the Indian student body is about to become the biggest. And that's absolutely fantastic news. You know, the more young Indians that come and see 
Britain come and understand, you know, our, our, our way of life and how we see the world. And symmetrically, um, the more in future we have young English kids, British kids um, going to India to study at Indian institutions, the, the stronger our bilateral relations are, are, are going to be. Um, you know, the UK has got some real strengths in this regard. Our visas system um, is performing very, very efficiently um, compared to those of other countries where, you know, it's a complete shambles. So the UK is now processing 80% of visas within a five-day service standard from India. Whereas I look around the world, and I see Canada is averaging about four months for a study permit. And the US can take as long as two years to provide um, Indian applicants with visas. So in that respect, sort of our system is really working to facilitate good people-to-people -people ties with India. Kavita, we can come into the geopolitics um, perhaps in a bit, because there I think um, there is quite a lot to discuss. Obviously, the UK has a so-called Indo-Pacific tilt in its new post-Brexit uh, orientation, and India is an extremely important part of that. Um, the trade agreement I, I just mentioned is a, is a strong feature of it. But there are other, but there are other sort of slightly trickier areas which we can perhaps come on to later in our conversation. Mm. I mean, one thing you didn't mention, Joe, was the legacy of empire. Shashi, I mean, you're, you're so well known for writing about that. Um, I mean, you, you said that empire isn't so important. I mean, is it more important, the legacy to, to the Modi government? Um, are, are people calling for a kind of re rethinking of the relationship in terms of perhaps apologies or uh, acknowledgement for some of the ills of the colonial past? Well, I can speak for myself, Kavita. I think I, think I shouldn't uh, I presume to make a generalization about this because not everyone thinks about these things. But I will say that there was certainly a lot of resonance when I demanded that there should be an apology for the atrocities of colonialism and that the perfect time to do it would be the um, anniversary centenary of the uh, Jallianwala Bagh massacre, which was a particularly outrageous atrocity in April of uh, 1919. So 2019 would have been the right time for that. Unfortunately, uh, though I gather the suggestion was taken very seriously and debated at very high levels of government, it ended up with nothing more than an expression of regret by Theresa May in the House of Commons as Prime Minister at that time. And, and uh, there is still no apology. And so I think there are many people who feel that, that there are a number of things in the form of atonement for colonialism that Britain could do that it hasn't yet done. And I, uh, will, will, it's not just the apology, though the apology is important. We had uh, Archbishop Welby prostrating himself at the same monument uh, and that was a, a wonderful gesture on his part, but he doesn't represent either the British crown, in whose name most of these atrocities were committed, or the British government that actually, in a sense, uh, perpetrated them. Uh, and that, in a sense, is, is, is perhaps still missing. But beyond apologies, there is the question of atonement, and atonement can take two forms that needed redressing. I think uh, both have begun to be thought about after this issue became uh, fairly visible, and I, I, I must say I, I'm pleased that that's happened in the last few years. Uh, one is that really English children ought to learn some unvarnished colonial history. It was shocking to me when I published my book, Inglorious Empire, to discover that at that time, it was entirely possible to receive an A-level in history without learning a line of colonial history. 
And I thought that was appalling. Uh, and it certainly explained why, at the time that I was researching my book, a YouGov poll had a large number of young people saying they thought the empire was a good thing and they'd love to have it back. I think 59% of that year. Now, that sort of thing, I think, is reflective of ignorance and a, a sense of denial that really ought to be addressed. I mean, in fact, it was the same year that I wrote that a minister, Liam Fox, actually said Britain was the one country that had nothing to apologize for in the 20th century. I thought, my God, there was a Delhi Wallabak massacre. There were the, the, the Mau Mau um, uh, tortures. There were uh, the insurgency in Malaysia and the, and the deaths exacted there not to mention Ulster and, and, and Ireland before that. I mean, the, before the Irish free state became free, there were plenty of things that Britain would really need to apologize for. But clearly, an educated minister in a prominent position wasn't aware of them. And so history has an important role, not only in our country, where we do learn some colonial history, but um, in your country, because you have an imperial past that you can't entirely be in denial about. And the second thing certainly is uh, the need for a capital city like London, with its proliferation of museums, to actually have a museum to colonialism, not just the Imperial War Museum, which celebrates a British conquests of colonies, but something that actually reveals the entire story. Uh, that said, on everything else, I rather agree with Joe Johnson. I think he had it pretty much exactly right. There's one backstory that he did admit when he talked about the increase in the number of Indian students. The reason for that was that the Indian students had also plunged to a record low because of Britain's discriminatory work permit policy. That students from China graduating from British universities could stay on for three years and gain work experience, whereas students from India had to leave in two months. And that was an outrageous piece of discrimination that had many people riled up because indeed many, when they go to graduate studies abroad, often spending a fortune, uh, are anxious to also get some work experience uh, and, and put some money in the bank before coming back to India. Well, well Shashi, we'll, we'll come on to that because, because that's something Joe has written about and cares yeah. quite strongly about. But anyway, so um, it, it's but, moved but, since then, and so I'm congratulating Britain for not having reversed that and brought us to the point. Joe, jo, 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 we'll get to that. But I, I, on the point of empire and that the atonement still has to take place, do you think that Britain is kind of having some kind of reckoning with its colonial past with regard to India? And is a museum, as Shashi suggests, is that is that one of the answers, do you think? Well, I think any sort of process of atonement or apology, and let, let alone reparation, has to be preceded by exactly what uh, Shashi Tharoor is recommending, which is you know greater education and awareness and understanding of Britain's past. Because any apology really can't be sincere or, or meaningful, unless it actually stems from some understanding of what's happened, and you know how we all came to have our present-day relationships to one another, and that job is really only just beginning. Um, you know, that's why Shashi Tharoor's books were such eye-openers to many, um, because they were unaware of these of these sort of shared shared histories, and why you know podcasts such as you know William Dalrymple's and Anita Anand's on Empire. Are drawing such big audiences is because, you know, for many people, this is entirely new material. And that says an enormous amount about Britain and the way we have sort of kind of just skated over this most extraordinary thing about us as a country, which was that we had an empire upon which the sun never set uh, for such a long period of time. So, you know, we don't know much about it. We're in a process as a country now of 
being more honest uh, with ourselves and trying to understand more about our history. But I think it's very, very much still in its early stages, extraordinarily, and has a long way to go before apologies and all the rest of it can be anything yeah. like sincere. But, but, but do you think it should be part of the national curriculum? Because certainly in England, it is not. Yeah, I think any history syllabus, you know, that has a British history element to it would be, you know, incomplete without, without a section on empire. It goes, goes without saying. Um, I, so I thoroughly agree with that. I think, you know, the best way of handling the past is to let historians and leading public intellectuals like Shashi Tharoor and, and others, you know, help us understand our past. And that's a real process that we've got, we've still got to go through. Just on the point that um, Shashi mentioned earlier, I mean, you've talked a lot about the importance of deploying knowledge assets, particularly in youth universities, and and maybe just address the point that Shashi made about visas and work experiences, because it's, it's, it's a really important point. Yeah, no, I mean, a big part of the growth in Indian student numbers over the last three years has been because of the reintroduction of the two-year post-study work visa. This is an extraordinarily a good policy change, um, which I helped put into place when I was in government. What it means is that two years after you graduate from a UK higher education institution, you can work or look for work. Then if you find work with a sponsoring employer, you can then stay on for a further five-year period on a skilled work visa. That period of time is itself renewable. So it's a great route towards uh, you know putting the skills that you acquire in higher education to active use in, in the labour market. And in due course, you can choose to return um, to India um, should, should, you wish to, should you wish to do so and, and deploy your enhanced human capital to, for the benefit of the, of the Indian economy and Indian society. So it's a great policy change. Um, I would just, on a tiny point of detail, just um, differ with um, Shashi Tharoor's recollection of the China situation. I don't think it was discriminatory um, in the sense that the, 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 post, the, the removal of the post-study work visa by Theresa May back in 2011 um, applied across the piece. It wasn't maintained for China. It was genuinely, it was, it was removed for everybody. There was, there, was not a, there was not a discrimination in that sense. Where you, are, where you are correct in saying where there was discrimination was in maintaining India on a so-called um, high-risk country list. Whereas China was not on a high risk, was not on that high risk country list. And countries that weren't on the high risk country list suffered from a slower visa processing experience. That was the only point. And, and the reason that the visa processing experience was slower was, be, was because the Home Office felt it needed more time to evaluate the applications to ensure there wasn't fraud, that documents hadn't been falsified from banks, from academic credential point of view, from a language ability point of view. That was, I mean, you can call it discrimination or not, but there was certainly a, dif a differentiation in the treatment given to applicants from um, countries not on the low-risk country list. Right, OK, thank you. Shashi, the, the relationship um, for Britain um, with India is, is increasingly become more important post-Brexit. I just wonder how India views Britain post-Brexit. Has, has, has it changed its view um, at all? Well, I think I think there was uh, the sort, same sort of mixed feelings we've got perhaps everywhere else uh, around the world. There was a concern, first of all, that uh, it made Britain in some ways less attractive to Indian companies that were seeing Britain as a wonderful English-speaking launching pad into Europe, which suddenly it ceased to be. So that was something. But I, I don't I don't think there's been a large 
number of Indian companies pulling out of the UK and moving to Paris, as was initially feared. So perhaps that that hasn't that hasn't really had the kind of impact was initially worried about. There was also a fair amount of excitement about people in Britain talking about intensifying relations with Commonwealth countries in general and India in particular, in order to make up for having pulled out of Europe. And that we thought would help. And certainly one of the indications that it has is the progress being made on the trade agreement that Joe Johnson mentioned, because there has been a far more optimism expressed on both sides than we're used to hearing uh, from Indian bureaucrats and government officials about trade uh, trade matters uh, with any uh, European country, including the UK. So, so those two would suggest that in the end, whatever the consequences are, and there are many consequences, I'm fully aware, for other aspects of Britain's international relations and economic relations, that in, in the Indian relationship, there hasn't been any significant negative as a result, and there could be a significant positive if indeed we end up with a trade agreement, because there hasn't been one that seemed even remotely likely when the UK was part of Europe. Hmm. Um, Joe, you mentioned that the, the relationship has kind of underperformed from your point of view. Um, I mean, what would a successful trade agreement look like for Britain with India? Well, you know, as part of the European Union, Britain was part of the process that uh, Peter Mandelson, when he was Trade Commissioner, started back in 1997. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of plugged away for 25 years. I'm trying to get an EU-India uh, FTA, which Britain would have uh, benefited from. That process um, carries on, but it hasn't succeeded in, uh, in, in, in finalising an agreement. Um, meanwhile, you know, the UK and India, now that the UK has competence over a trade policy for the first time um, in 50 odd years, um, commenced their own negotiations back in January this year. Um, there was a very strong uh, relationship at the top of the two governments at the time between Prime Minister Modi and uh, Prime Minister Johnson. Um, Prime Minister, the new Prime Minister Liz Truss um, wants to maintain energy and has you know, put a lot of time and effort into this particular negotiation. So I'm confident that at the very top, at least on the UK side, there's still a lot of energy and, and ambition going into it. Um, but you know, India is quite famous for being a difficult negotiating partner in trade negotiations. Um, and you know, time is ticking away. Um, in both countries, um, in terms of our electoral cycles. And, you know, India has elections in 2024, as most likely does the UK. We really need to seize the energy and opportunity that's before us now if we're going to get this done. Because I think if we don't get it done in the next sort of three to six months, my suspicion is that it will become hard to do before the guillotine of our electoral systems um, descends. Um, so I think we do, if we do want to get it done, and it's in both countries' interests to get it done, um, we really need to, you know, put our minds to it and get it get it over the line. And that will mean compromises on 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 both sides. You know, we we don't want to sacrifice um, just doing any deal just for the sake of it. We've got to maintain our level of ambition. That means you know progress on the services side from the from the UK perspective, and from the Indian perspective. You know, they will want to see. Uh, movement from India on the so-called mode four, movement of peoples side of things. And both countries need to recognise that they're going to need to compromise if we're going to have a negotiation that's worth the salt. Absolutely. Uh, but, but Joe, do you think that because of the need to 
to conclude that the trade agreement within all the time constraints that you've just mentioned, that there is a reticence on behalf of the government to criticise some of the more controversial policies of the Modi government. I'm thinking about particularly its treatment of minorities, in particular its Muslim minorities. No, I don't think there's there's uh, any real linkage of these two issues. Um, we know India's a well-recognised democracy. We, we recognise that we share values with India and the sort of the essential conditions which often form part of trade negotiations, the sort of the preamble about having a shared commitment to democracy, human rights and the rule of law and all the rest of it, you know, almost go without saying when it comes to uh, India. And I don't think there's any desire on the part of the UK government to start going back and, and inserting that kind of language into, into bilateral trade agreements. Shashi, do you want to respond to that? No, actually, I think I think you're right there. I mean, the, 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 the most important point is that this now has to be a relationship grounded on, on mutual give and take. I mean, uh, we all understand why Britain would love to sell us everything from Scotch whiskey, for which there's an inexhaustible appetite in India, uh, to, uh, to some sophisticated engineering, automobile parts, and so on and so forth. But the problem is, you know, what can we give you that you need that, that you're willing to take? And for us, one of the concerns has indeed, as Joe Johnson already pointed out, is people. We have a lot of them and, and, and they have skills to offer. And we'd like to be able to uh, have India, as it were, profit from the fact that we have people uh, if they're able to come and work and send money back and, and then you know return to India and so on and so forth. It's not that we're anxious to, uh, to lose our good people to you, but we're certainly anxious for our people to be able to profit from you. So there's got to be, uh, perhaps there will be a greater emphasis on goods out of the UK and a greater emphasis on people and services out of India. And there's got to be a preparedness on both sides to look at it from the other side's perspective a little more than perhaps has been the case in the past. Now, my understanding is that this thing has dragged on a little more than was expected even a few months ago. I was in the UK in June and was hearing extraordinary optimism then. I'm hearing a little less of the talk of the Diwali deadline, Joe Johnson, uh, than, than I, I had at that time. So uh, it may happen, it may not happen, but but clearly it was a useful deadline to talk about in order to encourage people to focus on negotiations. India is notoriously reticent about making commitments on the trade front. And I think we will have to, uh, we'll have to see um, how much Indians give. And at the same time, uh, Britain, which has gone through lots of other issues at home, including changes of government and a bit of an economic crisis, may also have reason not to rush into um, uh, making concessions that could have other implications in the British economy. So we'd have to see. But there is still, on the whole, more optimism about a trade agreement than there was a long time ago. We, we know that um, India has now overtaken uh, Britain as, as a kind of, um, the, it's, it's number five on the, the biggest economies in the world. Are countries entering this as partners of equal, do you think, Joe, now? Well, look, all, all countries are sort of equal in a UN kind of sense. Um, you know, they, they can sort of have a, have a right to exist and a right to their borders and their territorial integrity and, you know, their, their share of voice. Um, but obviously, you know, India is multiples of the size of the UK population-wise, with a you know, population of 1.3, 1.4 billion people compared to our 70-odd million. So, you know, we're, we're certainly not equal when one is 20 times the size of the other. Um, relative GDP, you know, much for muchness at the moment, but India over the course of the next 20, 30 years is going to become one of the three largest economies in the world. 
um, and will, you know, by a sizable distance, uh, dwarf the UK. So no, of course, you know, in terms of our uh, future relationships, it's, it's not in an economic sense going to be one of equals. And, you know, everyone has anticipated that um, for many years now. Um, there is one large area of disagreement, um, and that's with regard to the two countries' approach to Russia. Uh, last week, India abstained from a draft resolution tabled in the UN Security Council condemning Russia's illegal referenda and annexation of four Ukrainian territories. Shashi, I think it would be really helpful if you explained India's relationship with Russia and why the country isn't openly condemning Putin's actions in Ukraine. Right. Uh, I'm probably the wrong person to do it because I'm perhaps the sole critic of the Indian government's policy uh, in the Indian parliament. But the, just the historic relationship, though, but, but, with but Russia. I'll, do it, uh, yeah, I'll explain it, even if I don't agree entirely with where it stands today, and as I've said in parliament. And the explanation, frankly, is entirely rational and comprehensible. The Russians were helpful to us when the West was not prepared to be. The Russians uh, gave us an enormous amount of support in international forums like the UN Security Council when the West was uh, picking sides or taking sides with Pakistan over Kashmir and where the Chinese uh, kept bolstering up the Pakistanis. Russia remained a useful bulwark uh, for us um, geopolitically. At the same time, they became our principal supplier of defense equipment. Uh, that included, of course, both things the West wouldn't sell us as well as spare parts to maintain what we'd bought. And at one point, our dependence on Russia was to the extent of 85% of all our arms imports were coming from Russia. Now, that's gone down considerably in recent years, and it's now down to about 45%, but that's still a, larger, a rather large chunk, uh, particularly for a country which lives in a tough neighborhood and has two potential uh, aggressors on, on two of its borders, Pakistan and China, and therefore uh, your military source of military supply becomes an important partner. I'd say these two were the principal reasons. Uh, trade with Russia is a good deal less significant than trade with most Western countries now, or was at the time of the eruption of the war. And so India, I think, would say that those two reasons were the key reasons for the somewhat cautious stand that it took at the beginning. Now, since then, it's gently calibrated its stand. Especially, I think, um, it, it has begun to realize that the stand was looking less and less consistent with India's time-honored principles in international affairs. But at the same time, it's also true that uh, Russia's ability to, uh, to supply India those defense uh, goods has become uh, much less as, as their own manufacturing capacities have been sorely te uh, tested by their losses in the war and by the degrading of their production abilities with, for example, the impossibility of importing semiconductor chips into Russia and so on. So the Russians have a problem in maintaining that level of supply. And then as far as being a bulwark against uh, China's sort of all-weather support for Pakistan, Russia itself, as a result of sanctions post-Ukraine, has become so much more dependent on China than ever before that it's not particularly a plausible ally against China. So for all of these reasons, I have argued in Parliament and outside Parliament that it's time for us to seriously review our Russia policy in the light of all that's happened since the Ukraine war. But having said that, this, I think, is a fair understanding of the basis of India's policy. I might add that Russia has been selling discounted oil 
and oil-related goods to India, that's oil and fertilizers principally, uh, since the Ukraine war began. And therefore, our, our oil imports from Russia have gone up by multiples. But don't forget, they're giving us a 30% discount on oil that's 70% more expensive than it would have been had they not launched that war. So uh, it's not something we need to be terribly grateful for, I imagine. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com. That's iq, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Uh, Joe, Shashi mentioned China. I mean, do you see the two countries uniting over its common concerns about Chinese influence and power? The UK and India uniting. Exactly, yeah. First of all, I've just sort of prefaced anything I say about Indian foreign policy as saying, you know, it's, there's a great peril in people in London thinking that, that they can presume to, to determine or, or say what is in India's national interest. Only people in India have a right to do that. But I would echo very strongly everything that, that uh, Shashi Tharoor just said about uh, the Ukraine situation. Um, you know, I, I worry um, that history will look back at this period and, and, and question, uh, historians will question whether the right calls have been made at this juncture. And, you know, certainly, you know, to, to the untrained eye, people who don't understand the history of India's relationship with Russia and the former Soviet Union, who don't understand, you know, the, the support that India received at those difficult periods in, you know, the 1971, um, etc., um, that it does look extremely odd for a country that wants to have a voice in the Security Council of the United Nations, that wants to be, you know, a big player in global affairs, to to be abstaining on these huge global issues, such as, you know, whether or not we actually are going to condemn Russia's annexation of the Donbass, you know, where India abstained last week, as it has abstained on previous um, UN resolutions relating to re- relating to to Ukraine. You know, India has legitimately um, argued for a greater voice in global affairs for for that P5 seat. And the UK has been, 
in the lead in terms of Western countries backing that and wanting reform of institutions so that India can play that role to which its population and the size of its economy you know, gives it a, a rightful claim. But you know, I do think people will say, well, hold on, what, is, what values is India really going to uphold um, in the P5 um, if, it, if it can't stir itself to condemn the invasion of a sovereign country, to condemn the annexation of uh, Ukrainian territory, um, to condemn Russia as the author of extraordinarily gruesome uh, war crimes against uh, innocent Ukrainian citizens. I mean, these questions do pose themselves. India has the answer to them. It's not for me to, to sort of determine, you know, what's right or wrong. Only the Indian government and policymakers <laughs> and politicians in India can, can do that. But I would just point out that many other states, um, even those that have been actually dependent on Russia, like Kazakhstan, have been moving pretty rapidly to adjust to the realities that they are witnessing and are wary of being sort of bound up in a club of Putin supporters that includes the likes of Syria, North Korea, Eritrea and Belarus. I mean, this is presumably not the company that India really wants to really wants to be keeping. Right. Well, in, in all fairness, Jeremy, I think the, I, I'm not an apologist for the Indian government, particularly on this policy with which I have my disagreements. But there are two answers to two of your propositions that they would make. One is on the question of what values does India bring to the Security Council? The entire point in international affairs to have a Security Council is to represent a wide range of approaches, perspectives, cultures, and values. And just as China is very different from anything that we've stood for in the world so far, and you have, so too India would exercise the right to be different from both the West and China and Russia in its perspective. So that would be, I think, a legitimate answer that you can't predetermine that only certain kinds of perspectives in the world are acceptable for admission to the Security Council. I think that that's something which I think uh, the Indians would legitimately argue. On the second point, however, um, the question of condemnation, uh, Indians could also counter-argue that by staying, in a sense, um, relatively neutral, they preserve their viability to actually one day help deliver a peace. Now, I agree that seems slightly fatuous at a time when peace seems completely elusive. But the point is that they would say they've fallen well short of being identified as quote-unquote Putin supporters or members of that odious club you mentioned, uh, because Mr. Modi at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization openly turned to Mr. Putin and said, this is not an era for war. You really ought to stop this. And Putin made a slightly apologetic claim that it was the Ukrainians who weren't very keen on stopping. So in other words, he was willing to put Mr. Putin on the spot in front of a global audience, in front of his own allies and partners. And that shows that he's not a Belarusora or any of the others that you're talking about. He, he was somebody who did stand up for certain principles uh, of his own. That's the, 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 the counter a repost, as it were. But on the whole, I happen to agree with you, so I, I don't offer this repost with a whole lot of conviction, but I, I think you should be aware there is that. I, I think, thank you. I mean, Kavita, on the China point, which yeah. which flows from this, I would I would argue that India should, you know, abstaining is is one thing, it's a bit passive, and, and, and raising concerns um, in Samarkand, you know, is better than nothing, but it's not a whole lot. I would argue that the China factor is something that really should concern India because of the sort of the corollary of a Putin victory uh, in Ukraine would presu presumably 
um, embolden China, not just in Taiwan, but in India's Himalayan border, um, and encourage more land grabs um, in Arunachal Pradesh. So I, I, you know, only India can make these judgments, and it's impossible for me to, 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 to sort of stray into this territory without great risk of being attacked. But I would just argue that it's in India's interests to see Putin fail, and fail visibly, demonstrably in, in Ukraine, so that others don't take encouragement from the invasion of, so of sovereign states. And as to, as to the values piece, you know, being a member of the P5, you know, of course, doesn't mean that, you know, India would have to agree with the West on every issue or indeed any issue necessarily. Um, but, you know, India's, India's sort of brand and sort of pitch for itself is that we're the world's biggest, fastest growing democracy. And that last word speaks to the values piece. And as a democracy, you know, you would presumably want to stand up for those values in a forum like the Security Council and ensure that, you know, the rights of small states not to be invaded by their bigger neighbours is, is a pretty important one. It's, it's art. Yeah, I mean, th that, that was the burden of my song in Parliament as well, that, you know, we've, we've spent 70 odd years standing up for things like you know, the inviolability of state borders, the absolute fundamental principle of state sovereignty, the inadmissibility of the use of force to um, settle international disputes. And then suddenly Ukraine happens where all of these principles are violated and we, we retreat into an abstention-driven silence, which I thought was really deplorable, and I said so. So I'm not but, disagreeing with you on this, Joe Johnson. But, the fact but, still is, yeah. Both. I, I'd love to get to some questions because we're running out of time, if I may. Um, so a, a very good question from Sarah. Suella Braverman, the UK Home Secretary, said yesterday she was proud of the British Empire. The current Conservative Party, she says, doesn't seem like they want India as a friend. Why, Joe? Well, I certainly disagree with you on the latter proposition. I mean, the, this government, like it's pre, like Boris Johnson's government, my brother's government, we're, we're passionate about developing the relationship with India. So I really, really strongly disagree with that. The, you know, the I regret that Suella Braverman appears to want to curtail the the international student relationship between the two countries. This is this, if she carries through with this, and if the government backs her in this desire, that would be a real blow um, to the bilateral relationship. And I, I would really regret that. But I don't think the, the Conservative Party or this government as a whole want to weaken the relationship. Quite the contrary. You know, the, the post-Brexit orientation of the UK is towards the Indo-Pacific, and India is absolutely central to that. Um, Shashli, if the UK uh, Home Secretary says she's proud of the British Empire, is that, do you think that's a problem for India? For me, that is a problem, yeah, because um, there's an awful lot not to be proud about, um, as I've documented in some detail in my, in my book, Inglorious Empire. And I think ignorance of that and what's more pronouncing that from the ministerial platform is somewhat unfortunate. But if we can bring the question into, into the present era, I mean, I, I would have thought that um, the logic of Brexit was always accompanied by a desire to open up Britain uh, to be something more than just Europe's financial and technical capital, but deliberately to sort of use Brexit as an opportunity to tie up trade deals around the world, throw in as many tax and regulatory incentives as, as it would take to do that, and, and sign agreements with countries like India. I mean, 
There was even talk, you remember, of Singapore on the Thames was what Britain was hoping to become. The question that I'm increasingly asking now in, in the last couple of years, and particularly now in the last couple of months, is has Britain retreated from that vision? Because this kind of little England talk and, and you know, being proud of an era that the rest of the world thinks is actually rather appalling. Um, what is this supposed to imply? Are you are you now again sort of retreating into some sort of fortress Britain um, in which you're defiant of the others of the world, the, the the way you were towards Europe when you left them, or are you uh, are you are you abandoning talk? I mean, Empire 2.0, that fatuous idea, um, is 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 not acceptable to the rest of the world because we think Empire 1.0. It's a very bad idea in the first place. We don't want to see it revive. But Singapore on the Thames might have been an attractive idea. Uh, which one is it? And 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 uh, if you're going from one to the other, well, do tell us because we, we may not enjoy being part of the adventure. Uh, a question here from an anonymous attendee: What are both sides' feelings on the Kohinoor diamond? It's it's very interesting, isn't it? Because after the Her Majesty the Queen's death, um, Kohinoor was trending in India. Um, people arguing, or some arguing, they wanted it back. Shashi, um, what what are the feelings of, of the Kohinoor? Very emotional. I think uh, if you did a public opinion poll in India, something like ninety five percent would want it back. Uh, it had a it, it had a, a storied place in India's sort of collective memory, going back to uh, about a thousand years after the birth of Christ, when it was mined in 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 what is today Andhra Pradesh in southern India. Um, and it went through various things, but at most notably, it was worn rather ostentatiously by Ranjit Singh, the last big emperor of the Sikhs, as a symbol of his kingship. He wore it on his on his sleeve, as it were, quite literally. Um, and then it was, quote unquote, gifted by his then eight-year-old uh, son to Queen Victoria on the express instructions of his captains. So not exactly it was the equivalent of you're gifting somebody your wallet when somebody is pointing a gun at your head and you're eight years old in the bargain. Um, not exactly something we would particularly consider admirable. And so seeing it sitting in the Tower of London and the Queen's Tiara in some ways is a reminder to many Indians of, of many of the things that were wrong about British neutral India, that there it is uh, in a place where it emphatically does not belong. Having said that, Many of us are prepared to leave it there. I mean, I actually have written uh, that um, maybe we should just leave it there as a reminder uh, of British uh, theft and pillage. I mean, I've I've often joked that every British museum is a thieves' market in disguise. I mean, it's a what in India we call a chore bazaar um, because pretty much everything there was stolen or purloined at some point in the acts of building this this blessed empire that your Home Secretary is so proud of. But the fact still is that the Kohinoor has a symbolic value and particularly as a symbol of sovereignty. And I think as a result, Indians would like it back. I might add it's no longer the, the diamond that was purloined from India because it was trimmed to suit Prince Albert's and, and, and British tastes. So a good chunk of it was, was actually cut down and whittled away. So it's a, a much smaller diamond than the rather gigantic one that, that Ranjit Singh wore. But it still is this mountain of light, as what Kohinoor means, and has a place in the Indian imagination that is difficult to, to overlook. Um, it's actually in the Queen's consort's crown. Joe, what, what are your feelings about the Kohinoor? Well, I think the, the whole question of restitution of objects is a, is a very complicated and difficult one. Um, I, 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 when I was a minister, I approached it in a practical way and said, what can we do now 
that will really help make a difference. And one of the things which I did was to provide funding for the digitization of the hordes of rare and unique uh, documents stemming uh, from our relationship with India, which were mouldering away in various British vaults and libraries. So we have spent a considerable amount of money on digitizing these uh, extraordinarily uh, special documents so that scholars from India and all over the world can access them and, and benefit from them. You know, that was, that was something which I was very happy to support, and it looked likely to make more rapid progress than uh, advocating for the return of particularly sort of revered or, or special pieces here and there, which, you know, may be symbolically important, but, but ultimately would take a very, very long time to achieve. Possession is nine-tenths of the law, I think, is the argument here. Um, question for Joe here. How important of an ally do you think India is? Is it more important than Europe or America? Um, well, I, I don't think anybody would, would want to rank uh, allies or countries in that kind of way. I mean, they're, they're all important in different ways. You know, India is a, India is a country of 1.4 billion people. Um, a major economy, you know, is going to be you know, hugely important partner for the UK over the years to come, you know, of comparable importance to the EU, of comparable importance to the US and and also China. So it's certainly sort of up there at the very, very top of, of our most important bilateral relationships. Um, a question from Abhishek. Given India's economy's rise, is there a possibility of reverse brain drain to India? The allure of moving to the UK, given the economic and social conditions here, might not be that strong. What does the panel think about that, Shashi? I don't think India is any any more generous with work permits than the UK is. So, uh, um, well, I mean, jokes apart, I think there are a few Brits working in India, executives and major firms, and occasionally some young people uh, trying to, um, you know, slum it out here. I mean, they've been, I've met some young English people uh, in uh, Indian newspapers and magazines, for example, who really are here for the experience and 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 whose um, whose experience might well stand them in good stead if they go back into journalism in the UK and so on. But I don't think that India, because of its own working population and the large demand for very few jobs, has been particularly generous with work permits. Some of our private universities have been welcoming British professors, though I would say they're probably still outnumbered by American ones, um, because there is a certain generosity with work permits for uh, professors in, in higher education institutions. But I think the numbers are probably not comparable to the numbers of Indian passport holders already working in the UK. So it's a nice thought, and I, I, I certainly would be quite in favor of discussing reciprocity when it comes to uh, improving uh, work possibilities on both sides of the equation. Um, question here for Joe. We've seen the problems of religious conflict in Leicester recently. What do you think can be done about that? Yeah, this is a really worrying development that we've seen the sort of the uh, import of sort of communal politics and, and sort of the, the polit riot politics um, starting to emerge in the UK. And, you know, this sort of instrumentalization of religious difference by um, political leaders seeking an advantage of one sort or other. And this is a really uh, worrying development and, you know, something which is a cause of great concern. I'm particularly worried by the seeming alliance between um, far right um, white fascist groups 
Tommy Robinson with sort of the elements on the in the Hindu community seeking common alliance against the the Muslim communities on I think this can only end badly and only uh, only serve uh, the interests of those who seek to undermine the whole idea of a diverse and plural society um, a multicultural society and so it's a very very worrying development and um, I I really think uh, we need to work hard to ensure that the scenes that we've witnessed in in Leicester are really a flash in the pan and don't become sort of ingrained in how politics gets done um, in in Britain as it is in parts in parts of the rest of the world. I mean, Shashi, were you shocked to see those scenes of, of Indian subcontinental politics spilling out onto the streets of Leicester? Absolutely. And I, I, I wrote a column about it in the Indian press expressing my, my concern. I mean, I... I um, was not fully aware of the extent uh, to which British right-wing groups are also getting complicit in this. I thought it was bad enough that you're seeing the worst elements of, uh, of uh, subcontinental religious divide transported to England, because in fact, I used to praise the diaspora as being the best uh, evidence of undivided India, the pre-partition India. I mean, I've seen Indians and Pakistanis working side by side in the Gulf, for example, uh, uh, and, and having the most astonishingly amicable relationships. And I've written in the TLS about watching the India-Pakistan World Cup match in Manchester, I think it was, uh, or Liverpool, and, and, and just uh, enjoying sitting uh, in an audience of mixed Indians and Pakistanis in the diaspora who got along famously with each other. So Leicester was a bit of a shock to me because it seemed to me to undermine my conviction that the diaspora was getting these things right in ways that we hadn't been able to do in the subcontinent since partition. And it'll be dismaying to me if we end up with uh, with, with all of that spreading across the waters. And perhaps uh, next you'll see versions of that in the US as well or anywhere else where there are large Hindu and Muslim diasporas. It'll be terrible. I'm fighting for greater Hindu-Muslim amity in India. I certainly don't want to see it declining in the places where it does or has existed so far. Um, and just finally, uh... Shashi, for you, what do Indians feel about the Commonwealth? Well, I, <laughs> I've written about that too. I'm sorry to say, uh, with a certain. Is there anything model, you haven't yeah. written about <laughs> <laughs> on on the India-British relationship? I think, I think that I've probably sort of exhausted my repertoire. <laughs> but, but I will say that it's a long and complex subject. I, I, I have felt that uh, that that the Commonwealth was a very very curious exercise in preserving a connection of which many of its members disapproved. So, you know, there was Britain, the globe-straddling imperium uh, that was now sort of reinventing itself, but still with a monarch heading an association whose only unifying factor, factor was, was frankly a conquest and oppression. So uh, it, it was, it's a curious institution. And I think Jawaharlal Nehru in arguing that India should remain in the Commonwealth even after after independence and declaring us to be a republic, was expressing the logic that, that in an increasingly globalized world, to use today's language, it was crucial to retain partnerships through association with other nations. So why destroy a partnership we already had, even if it was initially acquired unwilling? Now, the question is, how long can that logic sustain uh, itself? I mean, the, the Commonwealth um, has frankly become less and less relevant in international relations. And while Britain has long touted it as a constructive and vital force in the world, its work has really lived up to that billing. 
and marked as the organization is by rather limited funding for assistance to its poorer members. And I'm happy to leave India now, India out of that list, but there are lots of poorer countries in the Commonwealth uh, where there are no really ambitious collective projects. There's no Commonwealth free trade agreement, nor is one being negotiated right now as one is with India. And with the post-Brexit decline of London uh, as a financial powerhouse, we've seen China, for example, overtaking Britain and the Commonwealth as the principal donor to many of the Commonwealth countries. So what is the incentive, as it were, to keep it together? It's something that I'm, I'm getting skeptical about. I'm not calling for anyone to dissolve it. I'm certainly not urging India to leave it. I do see the value of having this association for now, if nothing else, as a meeting place and a place to come across other countries, networking, as it were. But um, beyond that, a post-colonial relationship between countries that see themselves as sovereign equals, how do you fit that into something headed by the British monarch and held together by a history which was not itself very savory? We are standing as equals, as Joe Johnson said, but the Commonwealth is a reminder of our historic inequality. And I, I think unless de Britain develops the political will and devotes the economic resources to providing a sort of revived thrust of the Commonwealth as an institution, its future does seem imperiled. Uh, Shashi Tharoor, thank you for taking time away from uh, the Congress uh, presidential elections. And uh, Joe Johnson, thank you so much for being part of our India at 75 series. There will be more if you look at the website. And uh, thank you all for joining us and your excellent questions. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.